Hello and welcome to Shakespeare on Screen, a podcast where I meet up with friends to and just special guests to talk about about sh- recorded productions of Shakespeare, movies and adaptations. The first episode we I had of this podcast, we talked about a very loose adaptation of of Shakespeare. So all those are are welcome too. This week we're um, we're talking about national theaters. Um, production of Coriolanus starring starring Tom Hiddleston which was briefly which was done in 2013 and was briefly made available via YouTube so we got to see it and we're gonna just talk about it I have with me um, an alumni from the remote repertory Shakespeare company (laughs) Amy hi Amy hi so thanks for coming on to talk about this um so, first question I always ask before we get into the the main main show is, what's your relationship with Shakespeare? Oh gosh, um, yeah, I, I we have a, a long history, I'd say Shakespeare and I. Um, <laughs> I um, grew up with I don't know if you know the Charles and Mary Lamb tales from Shakespeare. Um, uh, I that was one of. It's it's a you know, it basically a collection of of summaries um, written I think sometime in the 19th century of plays and that was one of the first books I think I read um, and then I kind of first encountered the plays in an adapted form when actually my elementary school um, in the sixth grade class would put on a production of Shakespeare every year and my year it was As You Like It and I got to be uh-huh. Jaquies. Um, and I loved it. And so I think from that time on, I really developed this deep love of it. And I decided one summer in, I think, beginning of high school to just sit down and read all the plays through. So oh, I did. Wow. <laughs> um, and, that's so awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and so uh, obviously I've been revisiting the plays um, again over the years and seeing a lot of things that I missed because I was a y- young teenager. Um, but he, Shakespeare's always been a part of my life on a kind of strictly hobby basis, um, doing readings, um, helping out with marathons, um, that kind of thing. But um, I, I'm not a professional or indeed amateur actor, but um, I do engage a lot with the text on a regular basis well neither am i i'm not a professional actor either uh or scholar just studied in college that's all my claim to fame but i really love um i re- i do love shakespeare from uh amateur perspective and i just love to, to watch um adaptations and just and i think watching the adap- adaptations or just recorded shakespeare just helps because that's an interpretation of the text in and of itself. So you get to see whole things in new light. And, yeah, absolutely. And this is my first exposure to Coriolanus, full disclosure. Mm-hmm. But I, like just a, after I was done, I, I watched a little bit of the, um, um, because I have a subscription to the Broadway um, HD via Amazon Prime, uh, I, 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 w- I was able to watch um, the BBC's Coriolanus. Oh, yeah? Just, just like a little bit, like just a, a sampling. I was like, wow, that's a whole different reading on that whole scene right there. And just, it's fascinating. So kind of just get, jumping into it, let, let's start talking about this. Um, 
so Shakespeare did about four solid Roman plays. Mm-hmm. And this one is the most obscure of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is one of his least accessible plays in a lot of senses, I think. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, of course, Julius Caesar is the most popular. And then probably Titus Andronicus, simply for all the pearl-clutching, monocle-popping bloodiness of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, and then I guess like, then it's Antony and Cleopatra, and then at the bottom is this one. Like no one really talks about this one. Yeah, I don't, I, I actually thought it was the other way around with Antony and Titus, but I, yeah, I think they're kind of on a on a par. But yeah, this one yeah. is definitely the, the yeah the least known yeah. or read. I say Titus just because like it, just because like Titus usually when like people. If you get ordinary people on the streets to talk about Titus, about Shakespeare, maybe someone will talk about Titus and like, oh, that's a, it's like kind of like a punchline joke mm-hmm. in Shakespeare of just like, whoa, but new. Like, um, if you ever see uh, the great um, Shakespeare abridged play, like they, they they say like, oh, sorry, Shakespeare went through this Tarantino phase. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love the Renew Shakespeare Company. Yeah, the the cooking show was genius. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, Titus Andronicus also is is one of the only ones that's not based on history. It's kind of more this vague fantasy Rome. Yeah. Yeah, like th- this is, but but kind of getting into it and researching, like even though I'm a huge Rome enthusiast and I post a podcast with my buddy Evan Camacho on civil wars, and we're t- covering the end of the Roman Republic. This this is really unique, and I think maybe one of the reasons why this isn't popular is because like this is not a drama about any era that people really think of when they think of when they think of Rome. They think of like you know Julius Caesar or the Empire. No one like thinks of of Rome, the city state. Yeah, it's really, I mean, this is, so this is theoretically set in what, like the, the early 5th century um, BC or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, this is like, this is tiny, scrappy little Rome as imagined through legend because we really don't have any historical documents from this era. Yeah, that, that's that's part of the thing about this is like, this is like that there was like seven kings of Rome, which, come on, there weren't just seven kings of Rome. No. Like, they weren't really like come on like fun and, and fact the, um sorry cory lanus is actually related to one of them at least theoretically i mean neither oh. of them ever existed but he he's supposedly so the the he's one of the martii and so he would be a relative of ancus marcius who's one of the legendary roman kings so well, that kind very, of very, some of his political attitudes then yeah <laughs> so I mean, yeah, like, I need to do a full research. There's a great podcast series I like to listen, um, Partial Historians, where they cover the real Coriolanus and real in quotes. Mm, yeah. Um, in, like, several episodes. So, and they talk about the Shakespeare play at the end, so I need to listen to all of it. Oh, cool. 
Have you ever had a look at the at Plutarch's Life of Coriolanus, actually, which I assume was Shakespeare's source for most of this? Yeah, um, I have not, not yet. Maybe yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. I think I I won't sort of like go on about it, but um, no, no, go go on as much as you want about it. That's why we're here. <laughs> um, I guess. Uh, uh, in relation to the play, one thing I find interesting about it is, of course, so Plutarch is, um, he is a Roman citizen. He lives during the empire, yeah. you know, centuries and centuries after this is, you know, theoretically happens. But um, but he's also a Greek-speaking citizen of the Roman Empire. So in a sense, he's, he's not just Roman, he's Greek. And in his mm-hmm. descriptions of Roman figures, um, you know, not just Coriolanus, but you know, other figures in his parallel lives, he has a very outside perspective on Rome, especially Rome in this period. It's like, it almost sort of turns into an ethnography of early Rome at points. Um, And so Shakespeare's source material is kind of looking at it from this great remove, which maybe I think contributes to the sense of inaccessibility of the play. It's a very foreign feeling Rome, like to us, I think partly because of, you know, most people know Julius Caesar and the empire, like you said, but -hmm. also even to, to Plutarch, this is like a very weird culture to him. Um, And Coriolanus is a a kind of baffling figure to him. Mm. Uh, and I find it interesting that the play, I think, kind of conveys that. Um, and I, I, I suspect we'll probably be talking later about um, the kind of decision to modernize uh, on the part of the production. But yes, um, so yeah, I, I think definitely. that it might be relevant again later. But but yeah, I, I find it interesting how foreign Rome is in this play. That's a really interesting observation. I I really like that about about and. Um... I still maintain, I think it really come, boils down to just like the, this whole idea of the city-state. Mm-hmm. Like it, I, I feel that in some ways Plutarch could theoretically relate to that because that's when when like Rome, the city-state, is very much more in common with, you know, the Greek city-states of Athens, Sparta, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, you got, you got this democracy. Okay, yeah, I can get that. It's before Rome then start to like conquer everything where it's, but they still kind of naively think, oh, yeah, but we don't need to reform the Roman government. We can just operate on the same government. <laughs> yes. It really only works when it's a city state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, it, it's interesting in the life. I think Greece comes up a few times to be explicitly rejected by um, Coriolanus, at least as a kind of model for what Rome should be. Um, oh, and yes. Coriolanus is obviously like super anti-democratic. It's, and it's interesting because at a point where really Rome could kind of develop into anything and Greece is their kind of big model that they're looking to at least the legend of the kind of foundation of rome's legal code is that they kind of imported it from greece that's the story that romans tell that's what you find in livy um oh well if you believe um the true legends they're they're the ex they're migrant trojans who escaped and then landed on italy and said okay this is our home now right yeah um yeah but then also you hear that the British also somehow claim to be descended from from migrant migrant Trojans too. So oh, take yeah. the grain of salt. <laughs> the whole Brutus thing. Um, yeah. Um so getting into it, yeah, this is um so maybe the the foreignness 
of, of what you were touching on. Um, and I will say, like, for a non-expert of, and I'm not an expert, I'm not, I don't claim I am, but because I kind of understood a bit more the the dynamics of the politics, I think that might also contribute to mm-hmm. may, maybe a little bit because, I mean, getting into it, one of the things I, I, I really understand that maybe the layman doesn't is the nature of the tribunes being there mm-hmm. and the, the tribunes and that's a not not just like a part that's a key plot point is just how the roman political system works which i wonder if like the, the renaissance shakespeare audience did they understand this did they kind of get it or was this confusing to them as well yeah i mean i, I think that's a really interesting question um I mean, one thing is that I think there's at least some speculation that this wasn't done at the Globe, that this was done at uh, the Blackfriars or another kind of smaller indoor theater, chamber theater type space. And one of the things that would mean is that the audience would tend to be a lot more aristocratic on average. Oh, yes. So they would know this stuff more. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of think that that might have that, that, that in a way, this is this was a play he was writing for people that he expected to know something about early Rome. Um, I mean, it might also explain something that per- and this also pervades. So kind of getting into it. And this is actually a perfect transition in. Boy, oh, boy, the more I, 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 I w- especially when you watch the Rowan plays, it's clear Shakespeare is not at all a populist. Oh, yeah. He does <laughs> no. He he really does not think very highly of the mob. No. He he just sees them always as like this interchangeable, like volatile mass of people that can just flip on a dime and mm-hmm. just are always grubby, demandy, fickle. Yeah, it's. One of the least comfortable things about this play, I think. Uh, really, there's nobody who comes out, I think, sympathetic really much at all. Um, and it depends on the production. But really, kind of almost every character is just almost totally unlikable. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll slightly disagree with you in, in terms of like sympathetic as in like you can pity them. Mm-hmm. Or you can understand them, yes, but but likable. That's a different question entirely. Yeah. But this is something I really do appreciate. I think that's actually modern about Shakespeare. Is we, we have fallen in love in this last decade of, of this golden age of, of peak TV with the anti-heroes. Mm-hmm. And that we, we, we've kind of, maybe because our cinemas are dominated by superheroes, but like we really love like these gray characters. And Shakespeare is just full of that. And like Coriolanus is a great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, well, I think it's a very oddly ancient thing too, as well, because it, it's very Greek tragedy. Oh um, yes. That you're not. Yeah, they don't stand or fall on on how quote unquote sympathetic or morally upright the characters are. I mean, Oedipus is. <laughs> yeah. I don't think kind of anything likable about him, other than just like, <laughs> wow, that sucks, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting into it and um, I mentioned earlier the BBC version just because just comparing it to what I see with Tom Hiddleston and uh, I want to later on check out the 
the Ray Fiennes Coriolanus, kind of one of the only major films they've done of Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're welcome to come back on to talk about that one if you'd like. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, this is actually the, so the the Hiddleston one is is so far really the only one I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. And having seen it, I really now want to see others. Um, and yeah, I'm curious about the Ray Fiennes. So, I mean, that one is very fully modernized, but this one is, they've kind of taken an ambiguous approach. Um, mm-hmm. So when we are introduced to this, this is um, like we're introduced in the middle of a bread riot by the people. Mm-hmm. And also, and to get a little English majory and just speculative, we, we first have this red square drawn mm-hmm. on the stage. And I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that. Yeah, I wasn't really sure as well, because it's Coriolanus's son, right, who draws the square? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I have a fun little thing to comment about him later on as we oh, get yeah. into this, which I, yeah. I, I, I love that they add that detail. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure other productions might omit it, but ooh, boy, like Coriolanus, wow, ooh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> son like that's your only line and that's what you say awesome <laughs> yeah um but yeah i i wasn't really sure about the meaning of the red square either um there were some aspects of the kind of minimalist nature of the production that reminded me of um w- so with the red square with the chairs and all the cast kind of sitting there um in the beginning that reminded me of i don't know if you've seen um there was a 1970s production of macbeth with Ian okay. McKellen and Judy oh, Dench. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I haven't seen all of it, but yes, I've seen it. Oh, okay, yeah, with the RC. And yeah, that, that had the really, really distinctive staging, right, with the circle, and everyone sat around the circle and then, you know, kind of got it. And it reminded me of that, which was cool, cause, both because I think Macbeth is a really interesting comparison in terms of, uh, I, I think the two plays are really interestingly comparable in a lot of ways. Um, oh, but also yes, that, 100%. Yeah, but, uh, but also... Yeah, I just I th- I thought the staging really worked for that, and it worked for for this. Um, and yeah, I don't know about the red square. It seemed to mm-hmm. be something, yeah, something about boundary drawing and the kind of drawing boundaries in blood that mm-hmm. was cool. But I'm not sure I fully understood it. Yeah, maybe it is what you're saying in boundaries of just like the of, of kind of where. Coriolanus stands at or at that at that point he's Martius mm-hmm. where Martius stands and just slowly how he later on it becomes a black square at the center and that he can't move anywhere he's kind of just in this solid place now mm-hmm. yeah he's kind of hemmed in by blood I think that yeah that's that's a cool idea yeah so and although what I love about Shakespeare is that even though he he really like has a low opinion of the, of the people it's like, the people have a completely justified like it's like we're starving yeah like even more even more than the play conveys right it's like they, they were starving they were you know being used in rome's wars and then you know brutalized and discarded and sold into slavery like the plebs are treated horribly in yes. the early republic which is which was why the the tribunes were created so that the the people would have a voice in the senate in their governing body. Yeah, but then of course all that kind of ends up doing is creating another set of elite this time from drawn from a select group of plebeian families that sort of 
you know, got well, their own kind of, yeah. And I think actually that's basically what Coriolanus touches on. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because this is still three years, like this was made three years before Brexit. Because theoretically I could have seen this as like very much a comment on Brexit in terms of like the the populace being manipulated by these demagogues for their yeah. own nefarious goals. Yeah, I think it would have been it, it would have been very a very kind of timely Brexit response. I actually thought because this is what 2013 2014. Yeah. It's coming on the heels of Occupy. And oh, I, yeah. To me that I think seemed to be what it was kind of speaking to, which honestly made me a little uncomfortable um, (laughs) because it it kind of seemed to be voicing kind of sort of conservative propaganda views of the Occupy movement that it's like, yeah, the populace basically being bamboozled by a small group of elites into, um, into kind of behavior. uh, That's kind of though, that that's a lot of attitude. It's, it's both left and right. That was, that was the left's response to the whole tea party rallies and everything. And, the rights kind of wariness to occupy um, uh, right now that might be to these black lives matter protests. Yeah. On. It's, it's always like this kind of wariness that people have for mob for kind of large protests, theoretically the mob. Mm-hmm. And there's always this drive for kind of law and order theoretically. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, sorry. Um, no, go on. Just that I, I guess whether or not I, I I agree with it in terms of my politics, I think it is true to the play. Um, <laughs> we'll yeah. that. Well, and that's actually okay going in, but this is also the interpretation that they they go for is that when Coriolanus's first speech or Martius, he's still Martius at this point, Martius's first speech is a bit, bit of a great indicator of what they're going go, of the type of Coriolanus they're going for. Mm-hmm. Because like that speech can be incredibly stuffy and really just make you automatically say like, okay, this is going to be a challenging character because I hate that you you can pretty much hate this guy. The BBC speech mm-hmm. quite frankly is like the most clear indication like, oh, this guy's like a stubborn ass. Mhm. Uh, but but and this is the magic of, of of the performance and with the the choice that they try to go for is that Hiddleston is not that that kind of like snobby aristocrat fully for mm. for Coriolanus he's more just like just the kind of this soldier who's just kind of just only thinks like a soldier does mm-hmm. and so he's just kind of like the people are kind of like yeah, yeah, I got war. I'm I'm fighting for you people right now, so you can. Gr- I'm fighting so you can grumble about me. So <laughs> shut up. Yeah, I, I did. I've I gotta say I was skeptical uh, when when I when I saw that Hiddleston was being cast as Coriolanus, precisely because I had always imagined Coriolanus as the kind of aggressive asshole um that i think he is in a lot of other productions and i still think like that there there's more of that in coriolanus than than hiddleston kind of conveys but yeah i guess i'm not sure i would say that he wasn't arrogant just that his it was more like a kind of unthinking arrogance than a deliberate in your face yes absolutely well 
he kind of reveals that much more later on, mm-hmm. which I love. And quite frankly, I think makes this a much more a fun play to watch. Transcend. Mm-hmm. Tra- um, just unfold. And so then we get scenes of 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 why we of why we should theoretically it's like oh well okay maybe he's a bit stuffy but man is he awesome when it comes to fighting and this is something that's great about shakespeare that i love is that he doesn't make it easy he he gives you moments to hate your characters and moments where you can like say oh but he's great at this moment mm-hmm. so you, you you have to take the good with the bad which is that's people <laughs> yeah yeah and, you're really... and so like all these great heroic moments when the when the soldiers are being a bit cowardly and they're fighting off the Vol- the Volsky. So this is part of the confusing thing that I think people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe just like where it's, it's a different time period and why this isn't, this doesn't scream automatically, even though it's, it is interesting. It's just like that Rome at this point is a city state. And so it's at war with other Italian city states. Mm-hmm. And so like they're, they're at war with other Italians. Like, so, but at this point, it's not seen as civil war. It's just the Volsky are foreigners right now, and they're attacking us again. Yeah. Actually, I thought the production, um, they made the really interesting choice to have the Volskians all have northern accents. Yes. Oh, I think, I yeah. For, <laughs> yes. Like, which, like, for, like, yeah, for their I audience, I think that oh, yeah. kind of conveys yeah, it. They're, they're getting their northern accents but yeah no and i like that actually yes because it's just well i'm always a fan of like bringing regional accents to stuff like this um death of stalin like has just steven buscemi and and uh, jeffrey tambor use american accents in the middle of this where they're surrounded by brits who do their own various types of british accents it was just like this was Russia. This is Russia has lots of accents in that, and this is the Soviet Union. We had tons of accents. Like that's more a reflection of what it actually sounded like, or what it sounds like to Russians instead of just to Americans. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like that touch. That was great. I'm getting. I'm, I'm pulling out the IMDb page so I can get the names of the actors and the. So. And yeah, Hiddleston in this moment, he's, and this is where I, I because I've seen The Hollow Crown, I was cons- numerous times thinking like, okay, how is, like, this is a lot like his take on Henry the Henry the Fifth at first, where this is like, this is kind of like Henry the Fifth, where he's just doing great rousing speeches. Yay. I, Yay. Like, I like Hiddleston giving rousing speeches. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of see, this is, it is interesting, because Hiddleston is basically doing the reverse of Henry of Henry V, where he starts off as wayward vagabond Hal and then becomes nice guy Henry V, mm-hmm. to where we see, like, oh, Honorable Martius, and then slowly and slowly he's like, ooh, you're becoming kind of creepy, Coriolanus. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it because it, it really brought out how, I, I don't know, to me, Coriolanus is a little bit of a mixture between Henry V and Macbeth. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, like he's, he is kind of Henry V in reverse, and he has like none of the kind of natural populist charisma that Henry really does, um, or yeah. the manipulative ability, really. But uh, I th- one thing I found interesting about 
Hiddleston's Coriolanus is that I imagine Coriolanus is somebody who's utterly devoid of charisma, but really he can't be because so many people love him, despite the fact that he's like in so many ways kind of the worst. So Mm -hmm. you really do have to have somebody who has this instinctive, like physical charisma to both to engender sympathy for him and to explain why so many people are so devoted to him. Yeah. Well, I think it's also that I think it's what type of charisma you have and where you translate your skills, because all the, these moments with him as, as a master soldier, like this is his arena. This is where he thrives. Mm-hmm. And so him being a master, a master soldier and getting people to to valiantly fight for him and being soaked in blood that's all that all makes sense and then him being a klutz and tone deaf to addressing the needs of of the populace and and getting their vote i think makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. because that's very true of the real world and we, we experience that today of just like you might be great at one thing but you are terrible in this thing yeah uh, and i mean, just to kind of bring a, a real life historic example that isn't around. So I don't, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to get into modern day, but it's Lyndon Johnson of just Johnson was great behind the scenes committee man. And so like when you see him speak on stick, like on screen making speeches like this guy, Mm -hmm. this guy, (laughs) he's like kind of saying this, kind of lame, kind of kind of like Texas, just kind of seems nothing. It was all behind the scenes, like where he would just be charming and where he would bring on the offensive and he could get things done. It was like, oh, wow, okay. But no one had to have a camera behind the scenes to see, show that, so you don't, don't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I think Hiddleston did a, a, a fantastic job of, of bringing that out, but also that not just that he's you know he, he is obviously good at one thing and not another but he's also somebody who seems very damaged i guess both by his individual upbringing um and we kind of see in this scene with the women talking about his son kind of what yeah. i think he must have been like as a kid but also more broadly by his culture and what it rewarded in him and what it didn't encourage in him like he i don't know in hiddleston i like i see somebody who could have been very different in a different setting and there's a kind of mm. tragedy in that that i found really interesting like he seems very damaged fascinating um i, I didn't quite get that vibe but I, I think that's a very valid valid interpretation i guess um, i mostly saw it in some places where um uh in the scene with alphidius for example and some of the other scenes with his mother um he's he, he the, the way he's acting is actually a lot more vulnerable than um than yeah. i imagine coriolanus being and uh, like and one of the things that he seemed to me to bring out was that he's somebody who's really hungry to be loved oh yes in a certain way and I that was that. yes yeah um and, and so i i guess maybe that's a, a a little bit more what i mean that he he's somebody who's been denied a lot and that um and somebody who is in a in a certain way needy and that's part of what people Mm -hmm. are kind of responding to in him 
But uh, but yeah, I just found it oh, interesting. Okay, because... the, not, you sold me on this, and yeah, I, I see that of just a, a damaged soul. Yes. Yeah. So, I. And okay, bringing in like kind of like and where, I think that that this might be. You you might have hit the nail on the head of why because like this this really seems like one of the rare Shakespeare plays that's not designed and maybe that's because of who it was written for it's not designed to be a crowd pleaser mm-hmm. because um although I I still think it's fascinating because like this and I do think this is a great play because of the the complexity of the character and because of the kind of complexity of of the politics and everything that's at play is that. And I love this. This is why I've come to recently fall in love with Richard II. Of just like it's not Shakespeare doesn't like to give easy answers, or, or like because he likes to kind of address these questions. <laughs> and so we we get Martius suddenly gets awarded by his general the the title of Coriolanus, which is very much in Roman tradition. Which was that many times it's it's in their history where if you did a really great conquest they would dub you and your family to carry on like the name of your conquest uh, as part of your titles so scipio conquered africa when defeating hannibal so he got to be scipio africanus Mm -hmm. drusus nero conquered germany so his his heirs got to be called germanicus claudius Mm -hmm. conquered britain britannicus trajan parthia parthianicus that kind of thing and so he gets yeah. the, and this is also the other big detail which I picked up on. I don't know if you you picked up on this, Amy. Is like they they also include the detail, and maybe this is just direction. I don't know if it's in the text. You tell me if it's in the text. But they they also give him the grass crown, which he's seen carrying around for all of Act One for the rest of the play of of Act One at least. Mm-hmm. Of the grass, oh, go on. Oh, just they—they they mentioned the 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 oak wreath several times in the play, um, and that's also something that Plutarch dwells on quite a bit. It's actually one of those kind of ethnographic details that he goes, uh, he he delves into kind of as a digression. But yeah, sorry, go on. Okay, so they do. Oh, okay. Well, that's good yeah. because that's a really important thing, and that actually is where Shakespeare is getting something really spot on. Of that, that is a humongous honor. Of that, that is only given. That can only be given. It's one of the only honors that can only be given to by soldiers rather than the Senate, mm-hmm. and it's only given to to uh, a general who has who has say who who the soldiers deemed have has saved Rome, and so it was pretty much never rewarded. Um, Sulla was given it when he ended the social war, and. Augustus was given it when he defeated Antony, and that one's kind of BS, but it's kind of also, well, eh, kind of right at the same time. Yeah. But but so Coriolanus, because at at this point it's it's much more palpable and real that like that because they're Rome is just a city state, if Coriolanus and his army had failed, Rome could have been sacked. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's um, it, it's extremely small and vulnerable <laughs> relative so, to what we see before. Yeah. So, so giving him these rewards are pretty justified. And so, getting to that though, when he comes back into the Senate, 
I completely understand, and this is happens a lot, is that it's just like, well, I've won this war, so why do I need a campaign? Mm-hmm. Like, why do I even need to campaign? Like, just make me console. It's kind of H.W. Bush. What? I just won the the greatest American war in a hundred hours. What? What do you mean I have to? Like, what? I'm losing. What? <laughs> Yeah, it one thing one thing I think it it brings out brilliantly um and you know if you read historiographical sources on early Rome this tension is definitely there too is the is the kind of really the tension between the kind of valuing of military achievement above all else yeah and this very kind of performative component that's that's sort of necessary even though it's also kind of deprecated as a as a way of of gaining power and that's so Coriolanus is absolutely I think right to be to be given pause by that like okay from everyone else's perspective he's already done the hard part like he's he's he has those military achievements. All he has to do now is the relatively small task of displaying his wounds to the people and saying, I got these for you. Now, please, you know, give me the consulship. Yeah. But Which... for him, it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is not what you trained me for. Yeah. And so he's out of his element, which which I've been talking about. And I, I love that of, of the kind of the, the Peter principle of like, you can be brilliant at one thing, but you could be really terrible at this thing. And, and Hilston does a great job, a phenomenal job of just being this tone deaf, like, and just like openly contemptuous as he's, as he's trying to go, go for votes. I'm just like, and I'm going to cite HW Bush again. of just like, just looking at his watch pretty much. of just like, Oh gosh, do I really have to do this? Yeah. Well, there's another component I think, which is a kind of uh, obvious in a way, but it's not just about his achievements; it's about his descent and his status. The part of the reason that he's so, I think, blindsided by this is that he's also, in a way, never had to do this. Yeah. Uh, because he's he's gotten a lot by virtue of you know whom he's descended from, the class he belongs to. Um, you know, he's he's had really the the luxury of of being able to mostly ignore the plebs yes. for his entire life, and now he has to do like this one thing. But again, it's it's something that he's never had to confront before because, in a sense, of his privilege. Mm-hmm. So, and in terms of a a directing choice, like they they have the we see them like handing over paper ballots to. Coriolanus mm-hmm. to get him to get their vote and maybe we should talk about it now like the the portrayal of the tribunes is it's an interesting choice yeah <laughs> I kind of loved the sort of hipster mean girls vibe that they had going on <laughs> I do yeah um i do like i mentioned before i was slightly you know unsure about the kind of connections to occupy that it seemed they were drawing but mm-hmm. as far as kind of portraying what some might call the liberal elite i think they they pretty much nailed that kind of caricature yeah oh definitely i mean i, I get total tony blair vibes of just like that of just like that this artificialness and phoniness 
mm-hmm. and just manipulativeness that they do really well, which is part of again like Shakespeare is not a populist. He just like man, you people can really be e- duped easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're also portrayed as not really. Um, you know, but either in a Roman or in a modern sense, they're not very masculine. Um, and maybe this is even heightened by cross-casting Sicinius. Yes. But uh, but yeah, there 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 are people who are, are kind of not capable in the ways that Coriolanus is capable. And oh, oh. okay, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But like, not only cross-casting, which I'm totally fine with. That's that's okay. Whatever. And, but having, uh, I'm looking at the names right now, Sakinia and Brutus kiss at one moment. Oh, God. And kind of like in a romantic way. So like, yeah, it's totally like, oh yeah, they're, they're dating. Like in the middle of like, it's kind of like, what is that? Are they aroused by their kind of deviousness? Yeah. That baffled me too, mostly because, in all honesty, they they were giving me gay best friend vibes for the vast majority of the play. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I don't really know um where that where that came from, but yes, I, I, I in a sense I think I think they do seem to be be getting off on on having a kind of power. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At the same time, though, and and this is um just to compare other Shakespeare plays. In a, in a way, they're being the reverse of of what of the way Brutus and Cassius are being portrayed. Of Brutus and Cassius, they're they're the tragic heroes. They're they're complicated, like Coriolanus. They're they're nuanced, and like in in contrast, like Julius Caesar is just kind of like this flat, kind of just proud, stubborn fool. Mm-hmm. And and I think like the Tribunes are in this, so it's reversed where they're kind of like more flatter villains. But they go for it. I think yeah. in other productions you can you you could really sell the point that they they do cite several times like he's an arrogant ass so and like they they're envious of him but they also like have a point which I like in Shakespeare plays it was like I'm just Richard II I'm gonna cite again I'm just like it's like boy oh boy usurping a king is wrong but come on it's this king look at him he's <laughs> he's not we don't want him as king do we. Like, I don't know, but usurping a king's kind of bad idea because creates problems. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good comparison. Yeah, I th- I think you're right that, and one of the reasons I, I uh, Julius Caesar is is in a way I think the mo- the more interesting play for that in that it it develops and individualizes the conspirators more than than Caesar. And yeah, Coriolanus is kind of the opposite. And one of the ways in which it seems anti-populist to me is that it pits these the kind of it's sort of the the kind of great man myth right it's the it sort of pits these very individualized deeply flawed but also deeply explored aristocrats against a nearly faceless mob yes um and the tribunes are kind of intermediate and that they're they're kind of this indistinguishable two-headed hydra in this play and they're and they're hypocrites and schemers and backstabbers yeah care about the people either so yeah which i don't know at the same time i feel that that's just like great 
political cynicism, which I'm all for, of just like, yeah, the people that you think are with are with you that are the populist, eh, maybe not. Maybe all they care about is themselves. Maybe yeah. Is bad. Which I'm all for. I'm all yeah. for that kind of skepticism. Yeah, and I do like that it, it does that without also kind of sugarcoating that the patricians are their own kind of awful. Oh, yeah. Well, well at the same time, though, the, the, which I do appreciate, is the Tribunes kind of back Coriolanus into this corner where he's going to reveal his real opinion, and he just completely does it. Mm-hmm. And, like, he goes on this rant, and maybe for aristocrat, for the Renaissance audience, they, they, they might have been cheering but I don't know if they would be necessarily, because he's just like Flau says, like, you know what? Screw this whole democracy crap. Let's go back to kingship. That really ruled. <laughs> and I should be king, don't you think? Because I'm a total great warrior. And that whole speech is, to me, both terrifying and at the same time, like, oh my gosh, Coriolanus, you yeah. cannot say that out loud. Yeah, I I find it hard to think it would be perceived as anything other than a train wreck. Yeah. So that's just like it, it is putting it all out there of what he believes and what he believes, quite frankly. And maybe this is where the real Coriolanus comes in, because he probably did say things if he existed. Legendary figure, mm. probably based on some ounce of truth and then like tons of things made up afterwards yeah with other people but so he him just on that on that rant i'm thinking to myself like that is anathema to rome of there's a reason that julius caesar was like the crowds went silent when when they tried to crown julius caesar of rome was would never ever ever accept a king yeah, and like, especially not. I mean, this is theoretically speaking around like 490 something. It, like the Republic is at this point, according to the Romans' reg- legendary chronology, like 20 years old. They have yeah. just kicked out the awful, awful last king that they had. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like this is this is terrible on so many levels. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah. Gosh, when you put it like that, it's just like it's like saying, I, I don't, I don't, I did think of an analogy, but I don't want to use that analogy. Oh. Um. Uh, I, I, I want to think of a better one. So. Uh. <sighs> I'll just put put it this way. I'm just like it's just like if you had just gone out of a war, and you just say, "Hey, let's go back to to when things were really great." You mean the part that we just fought a war to end? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. It, it it really is basically that, and and kind of all all the more so because I I I mean. Yeah, if you, if you look at the sources, and, and again, this is kind of straying f- far from the the play itself, but I mean, there is a very real kind of risk that Rome could go back to being a monarchy. Um, and it, well, it, it does, but 
but it's a different type of monarchy when it does mm. become a monarchy again. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, I have some thoughts on the republic to empire tradition, but <laughs> uh, transition. But this is uh, this is maybe not the episode for it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Well, come back to do Julius Caesar. We could talk about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so then he gets exiled. We haven't really talked yet. Um, so I'm getting the actresses' names. Um, so Deborah Finlay as Vol. Volumnia? Volumnia, yeah. And Bridget Yort Sorensen as Virgilia. Mm -hmm. So I do like, and they and they really sell this. Um, like one that Virgilia is totally nuts about Coriolanus. Yeah, I really loved what she did with it actually, because it, it's such a, um, it. I think it's a really difficult part, just judging from the text, and it could, it could be. It would be so easy to make her a nothing. Yeah. She could be a wet blanket. Yeah. Uh, and she's not. She's just like, she's just, you really like this idea of your son, like, dying for his country? He's like, yeah. Don't you? He's like, no. That's, <laughs> that's awful. I want him back home. I like him. Yeah. And... I mean, their, their scene, obviously, is the final scene they have. <laughs> That's the scene that really does make it. And I want to talk in good detail about that when we get to that scene. Mm -hmm. So then we have the act break of just, like, that he's exiled from, from Rome. Good act break. And then, okay, because I came into this completely fresh... Mm-hmm. I was genuinely astonished. I was genuinely astonished when he goes to the Volsky. Oh, that's awesome. And asks Aphidius. I was like, oh my gosh, you have got to be kidding me. But at the same time, like just nodding my head like, yeah. I, and, I love that. I, I I love that you came to that fresh because yeah, it's just so incomprehensible. It's, <laughs> it's, it is like shocking. It's like, it's right after you've fought a war with them, you go to them. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's basically like, okay, now I, I'll use the Civil War analogy. It's like, it, it would be like like Ulysses Grant going to the South and saying, hey, guys, can I join you? Well, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Because yeah. the, the, the fight with the Volsky is not an ideological conflict in any way. No, it's it's like a, it's a war, it's a combined kind of war of survival and war of conquest. Yes. Um, and, and I love that they kind of double cast the citizens as um, Volsky because it really plays up how kind of interchangeable. The, the citizens are, yes. Yeah. And... Uh, and I, I want to commend him. Hadley Fraser's performance as, as Aphidius, phenomenal. He, he's he, he's able to go toe to toe with with Hiddleston, and he does a great job. I feel with it and does a good, well, by my American standards, a good Northern accent. Yeah, I thought the accent was good. I was actually, to be honest, I was a little bit less convinced by his Aphidius than I and I think you were, but partly because I think they made they made Aphidius very different um, from who he is in the text. Um, okay. Part of it was uh, I, I think I might have mentioned to you before that they um, they changed around the ending a little bit, and we can talk oh, about that when good. we get to it. But um, but he's a very different character 
in this than he, uh, in this adaptation than he is in the text, which took a little getting used to. Okay. Um, but I, I like I thought what they did ended up working really really well, um, and I, I did like him. Um, but yeah, it was just I think a little bit of a su- surprise to have him portrayed as this kind of bluff northerner um, and have him so genuinely emotionally invested in a certain way when the the figure you get in the play is actually much more cunning um, Mm. and much more kind of manipulative uh, in a certain way. Um, But Uh, yeah, I I do think this worked, but I think it works because of the same way that they're going with Coriolanus. They're going for a much more sympathetic Coriolanus, Mm -hmm. like I said, so that his, his, I think in other versions, you could definitely see Coriolanus's banishment from Rome as just desserts. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, it's like, yep, you did great service for Rome, but you are just, no, get out of here. Like, that's not Rome. Like, we're not kingship. Get the hell out of here. No way. And, but, and, and that kind of snobbish entitlement, but because they don't go for that, and that he's just more, which I like, is Hiddleston is just stubborn. Mm-hmm. He's not like snobby. He's stubborn. He's just like he just won't let it go. Like he won't debase himself to to pandering. Mm-hmm. And he and he won't really like uh, disguise his his biases, which you can admire, but at the same time also be like, mm, buddy, just just tone it down a little bit. Just be a little more flexible and everything. And that's why I love the performance by um, Mark Gaddis as Men- Menenius. Menenius, yeah. Of just being oh, like, I- really funny, but also just being always like the, the gentle hand to just kind of like try to sway him. Just like, come on, buddy. Buddy, I love you. Come on, come on. I gotta say, I, I'm glad you brought up Mark Gaddis because he was like my surprise MVP, MVP of this production. Um, okay. I like, I... I've seen Mark Gaddis in a fair amount of stuff in Sherlock mm-hmm. in Doctor Who in Game of Thrones, and mm-hmm. I've never really rated him as an actor, um, mm-hmm. but he was really in his element, it seemed like, in this in this production. And so maybe, like, Shakespeare is just his thing, but he was just <laughs> so good. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah, oh, I agree. Yeah, he was the MVP, like, of, of like, non-lead, but really steals every scene he's in. Mm-hmm. Because later on, like, I love that moment where he's the first one they send to beg. Yeah. And, and he does, like, such a great job. And also Hiddleston of just, like, that... It just shocks me of just after all that, then just, like, Hiddleston just, like, get the hell out of here. I know. It's heartbreaking. And I, I, I didn't I didn't expect to be heartbroken at that point. But, oh, my God. It was yeah. his, his face. He was so devastated. Yeah. Um, Gosh, and that was a good punch. But going to Aphidius and what you were saying earlier, because they're, they're going for the sympathetic, I think, Coriolanus, they also go for a sympathetic Aphidius where he's the foil to to uh, Coriolanus of that. He's just he's just a good soldier for the Volsky, and that's all he really cares about is the Volsky, mm-hmm. other than being like feeling that Coriolanus is a great rival for him and like yeah. a war opponent. So there isn't that kind of conniving and cleverness, I think. Mm-hmm. It works for this one. It works for this one. Yeah, no, I think, and I, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to say that it's it's 
to, like not faithful to the text at all. They're de- they definitely genuinely do have a kind of enemy enemy mind dynamic mm-hmm. going. Um, it's just that I, I think the transition to like the end where he has Coriolanus killed is done differently um, in the play, and, and it's it's kind of I think it's it's up to the actor how much they make his bond with Coriolanus genuine and his regret genuine. Um, and uh, you know, juxtaposed with what he perceives to be the necessity of getting him out of the way, um, or you know, the extent to which he's he's always at at some level on some level been using Coriolanus. No. Um, but uh, but yeah, I really I really did like this Aphidius. Um, so we've been talking a lot about Hiddleston, but I just want to say like that, and I. I Full disclosure, I mean, uh, the most I've seen him outside of some some Shakespeare and his little bit appearance in um, Midnight in, in Paris is just um, as Loki. So, and Loki is a great character for Hiddleston, and he's shown many um, range and things to do as as Loki. Mm-hmm. But I feel that w- that that this is one of the best real showcases of what hiddleston can bring to acting of that you can of like the, he's made Coriolanus much more sympathetic than quite frankly maybe he, the character deserves mm. but at the same time like later on in the second act where after we've gotten this sympathetic Coriolanus, we suddenly get this really dark terrifying Coriolanus who it's not even through a lot of words he says it's just the way he looks at people mm-hmm. the way he regards people and how even when his wife, who he's totally obviously nuts for, even she can't sway him. Yeah. And I really, really do applaud that performance. I'm just like being able to showcase those things of being at one point sympathetic to another point being, oh, wow. Oh, you are cold. And oh, wow, you. You are just like, damn. Yeah. Like this is this is a one messed up person. But also, you still, on some level, feel for him, yeah. even when he doesn't really feel for himself. Um, well, I, I get it. It's just like a, at this point of just like, of like this is another one of Shakespeare's revenge stories, or, or that's what they make this play into in a revenge story of just like, I've done everything for Rome, and this is how you treat me. So, screw you, Rome. Yeah. It's funny, actually, because um, in the Plutarch, there's like a paragraph long dip- like description of Coriolanus's emotional state at that point. And Plutarch finds it absolutely fascinating. It's kind of like a this absolutely consuming cold rage. Um, mm-hmm. And it's an incredible description. Uh, and, and I think Hiddleston sort of conveyed that very well. And he made sense of that sort of the, the kind of decision to go over to the Volsky in that way. It's just this sort of he becomes this kind of rage automaton. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yes, he does. <laughs> and so great performance. And so then let's get into the the two big finale scenes to, to really sell it. So, and what I wanted to mention earlier about, about Coriolanus' son. So the, okay, I got it. Joe Willis, he, he played young Martius. And he only gets one line in, in this production. And it's so great of just like him flat out saying, Dad, I don't care if you're my dad. 
if you attack Rome, I will have vengeance and I will kill you. Yeah. And that's like, and, and like, he doesn't really acknowledge it or, or comment on it other than like, okay, I believe you. Mm-hmm. It's just like, damn, wow, son. Like, that's a great line of just like, whoa. It, oh, yeah. God. I mean, that's kind of how the son is constantly, right? Because the other des- description of his character you get is at the beginning where Valeria talks about how he like chased a butterfly and then got mad at it and tore it to pieces. <laughs> Um, which is really like the kid in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and it kind of you kind of see where Coriolanus came from in a yeah. sense, um, and that that kind of is being perpetuated across the generations. That poor kid. But um, <laughs> well, he is his father's son. I'm just like, he's like, I don't care. Like, I'm loyal to Rome, and no. Mm-hmm. I'll run care. until I'm bigger, but then I'll fight. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. I do like kind of how immediately and the way they and this good directing and blocking of just like immediately just basically just of just Virgilia arrives and she just immediately like is within seconds in Coriolanus's lap. Oh, yeah, that was I I found the choices with her so interesting because, yeah, again, she 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 could have been kind of dishwater, but she's she's obviously not. Um, and yeah, they had, they seem to have a, a kind of weird dynamic going on where they were kind of, it seemed like a little bit like she was, maybe this is too far, but that she was kind of getting off on a, like a display of wifely loyalty and submission. Um, cause there's that yeah. earlier bit where she refuses to leave the house until he's back mm-hmm. in the scene with all the women. Yeah. and. Yeah, on paper, that just seems like a, oh, she's like one of those absurdly virtuous Roman wife stereotypes. Which they could go for, but no. Yeah, but here she has such contained power that it it turns it into something very, very different. Um, and yeah, there's such they have such good chemistry um, that it it makes so much... It, 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 I also... Although, have- I kind of feel like he should have better chemistry with his mother than his wife, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, I, I did think this is just me. I I did wonder because I I came to this fresh. I was wondering like, because the way they were playing it, she loves him so much where I was wondering, are you going to be okay with this? I did wonder that for like a nanosecond was like, are you just going to be like, kind of like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Like, I just want you. I just want to be with you. But she wasn't, thankfully. She was like, no, no, I'm not okay with you sacking our home. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, just yeah. try to urge him, like, come on, I'm your wife. Please, please, please. Like, don't make me choose between the two. Mm-hmm. And like, think about your son. Think about him. And just like trying to reach on that emotional level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both yeah. she and Volumnia really display their conflicted loyalties so well. Um, yes. And I love that. Oh, like, 100%. Yeah, like the 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 bit after Coriolanus' turning point where he conveys and then Volumnia realizes that she's basically condemned him to death is just devastating. Like her expression yeah. for the rest of the scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And... But I do love that, I, and I do think that that's one of the things that makes this interesting for a Shakespeare play is that 
you're expecting a big climactic battle on nope it's like she's able to sway him out of it mm-hmm. and she's yeah. able to, get him to go back to rome and just argue a peace treaty yeah i mean she she is such a remarkable character um like she yeah. has all the Absolutely. political political and rhetorical acumen that her son does not have um well i love earlier when she basically convinces him to go for go to the people and run for consul like she know, has the key she has that kind of that that magic key of like she knows what button to like she plays other things but then eventually she just has one this one key thing that just like finally gets him to snap he's like okay yes mommy yes mommy mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of on the dime and, and and she does that eventually like after trying to reach like first like virgilia tries to go for the emotional appeal like come on please like for your family family's like nope i don't care not enough not enough then she goes for the honor mm-hmm. then volumnia comes in for the honor's sake and like like you're, you're putting your family between rome and and the people we love uh, come on and then finally she does I don't remember exactly what it is, but she finally is able to find that key and she just clicks it and he's like, all right, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the, the denial of him, right? She said, she says, Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. He, he's, he's a Volskian. His wife is in Coriolis and his child is like him by chance. Um, which is fantastic. But, um, yeah, I, I like the, I love the way Hiddleston plays that too as well because he has to turn away so they don't see his tears for that entire yeah. speech and he's so he's he's already cracking but she can't see that. Yeah. Um. It does also make give Hiddleston like this kind of tragic heroic end of that he of for the finale scene of just that he he suddenly turns on a dime back to the Romans and knows that in concluding a peace treaty, he is, he is going to die. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, so it's not easy. It's a gray character. It's complicated where it's like, Oh, well, oh, so he did end up doing the right thing for Rome at the end, kind of, even though you cleaned up your own mess. So that's kind of a mixed message. <laughs> yeah. I think Shakespeare does a, a wonderful job of, of sort of truly making him, great at the at the at the moment where he seals his own fate mm-hmm. um yeah and okay so you can get into it but for me also watching the end is just like of course Aphidius is going to respond this way he's like of course mm-hmm. it's like what the hell i gave you an army yep <laughs> and like i watched you get more popular than me and this is what i get this Mm-hmm. another peace treaty like i don't want a peace treaty i want rome so i get you yeah and the the sense of personal betrayal oh yeah and hadley Fraser performance was just fantastic um yeah like i hinted at before the the ending in the play is very different um there's a lot more just playtime between the climactic scene and the end so they kind of condense things but they also Aphidius basically goes off and like rallies some conspirators 
to murder Coriolanus. And then they have this whole very public scene at the end um, where it's Coriolanus, Alphidius, the Volscian plebs and the Volscian nobles. Um, and the Volscian nobles are still very much on Coriolanus's side um, because they think he's done a great thing. I mean, he's achieved a peace, which, um, you know, f from the point of view of a lot of Volscians is probably a good thing um but um uh, but the the plebs are incensed and alphidius and the conspirators basically you know like the tribunes have done with the roman plebs they turn them against coriolanus and then you get this assassination scene and so alphidius isn't really the kind of personally almost wronged lover that you get with hadley fraser's um he's he is quite calculating in that final scene. And I, I find it fascinating that they chose to, to change that um, in a way that I think worked tremendously, um, yeah. but was also not really what we get in the text, which is more like a perpetuation of this class strife. Yeah. Well, I mean, I put it perfectly. Uh, well, and this is something I, We've, we've touched on a couple times in this podcast of just you or actually uh, maybe not that much but this is a perfect time to talk about it of just making that decision oh i have touched on this once before of just like i always say there's two approaches to shakespeare to adapting shakespeare it's the brana the text is sacred don't you dare mangle the text in any way shape or form mm -hmm. and there's the olivier i'm making a good play slash movie that's the first priority so if I got to shuffle around scenes, if I got to trim things down, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and at first I was very much a Brana advocate of just like, oh, don't you dare, dare touch Shakespeare. How dare you? How dare you think you, you know better than Shakespeare? As it's gone on, I'm more, more inclined to agree with Olivier. I'm just like, mm. if it makes a good, if it works for this interpretation, that's fine. Because the text is out there. The text is there. Yeah. For, for me, I agree. I I think I, I generally take some convincing and that I really want to see what good it's doing to make the change. But this okay. is one case where I, I really do see what good it's doing. And I see how it, you know, I see the logic of it. And in cases like that, I really love to see the changes that directors decide to make. Um, and why, you know, if, it, if it's, it's something that's very clearly, carefully thought through, it's something that's, you know, congruent with the actor's interpretations and, mm -hmm. you know, the overall play. And it just, it, it was so powerful seeing it played out. Um, yeah. And, well, I mean, visceral quality to see him hung up and gutted like that oh. is like, ooh, oh, wow. Yeah, that was... Um, <laughs> That, that was really quite awesome. Apparently, um, Laurence Olivier did a production of Coriolanus once where he kind of like fell backwards off a cliff at the end or something. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. um, but yeah, I, I love the sort of upside down crucifixion thing that they had going here and how personal it was for Alphidius. And then Volumnia coming on at the end with the flower petals. Yes. Um, All wonderful touches. Yes. Great final touches. And I mean, if... And anyone who wants to come on to talk about it, but one of my favorite series, the the Hollow Crown, like they're the first one they did, Richard II, they chose to have a entirely different character kill Richard II in that play, that brings a whole different dimension to the final scene. Oh my gosh! Which which I loved, like the and later on the 
the Royal Shakespeare Company did likewise. Of, I'll say it right now, unless you don't want me to ruin it. No. Okay. Okay. So, uh, it's the uh, they they chose to have a, a Merle kill kill Richard the second. Uh huh. And so it it one it makes the the scene of Henry the fourth pardoning Merle all the more relevant. Because then mm-hmm. it's suddenly then Omeril kind of returns the favor by killing Richard II, mm-hmm. and that's just like well, I didn't tell you that no no and, oh crap like, yeah I, I pardoned you Ugh. what have I that, done that is fascinating like it really adds such a dimension to his guilt yeah and uh, also makes it more sense for like Omeril is like trying to get on Henry's good side so like oh okay yeah. I'll kill Richard for you. <laughs> now we're cool, right? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, especially with the history plays, I, I think it's really interesting to make these decisions about uh, motives and and, oh. and identities because it really echoes the whole thing with the historiographical tradition, which is, you know, especially with something like Coriolanus, which is, this is legendary history. Yeah. It's so subject to interpretation and there are so many different accounts of what went on that it feels like the directors are participating in interpretation. kind of creating it yeah, yeah yeah creating a a new a new history yeah well i mean and yes i mean the more legendary you get the more you just have to just choose what you want to do um you 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 alluded to it earlier so before we close out um I've become softened more and more on on modernizing. I guess it really just boils down to that frickin' Romeo plus Juliet, which I thought we were gonna was the one we were gonna come on to talk about. And you're still welcome to come on and talk about that. I will <laughs> only talk about it if someone comes on to talk about it with me, because that's the only way you'll get me to talk about Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> but but like like they they do have they just mix it up. They have like kind of period clothing but they also have a bit more kind of contemporary stuff on at times and they just don't really dwell on it mm-hmm. i mean we don't really see swords but we don't see guns either so it's just kind of just kind of like eh, don't think about it that much yeah it was in this kind of in-betweeny state which i i, I liked that a lot um actually i i, th- I thought it echoed very well what probably would have been contemporary Elizabethan convention, which is oh, to yeah. have basically people in modern dress with maybe like a token toga on or something <laughs> to indicate that we were in Rome. But the, exa- the exactly the same kind of hybridity that we see here, um, mm-hmm. I think. And yeah. yeah, like I said before, I was kind of uncomfortable with the Occupy residents for you know, <laughs> purely reasons of personal politics um but i thought they achieved a good balance between sort of translating it into terms that a modern audience would find understandable so that they could kind of have access to information about you know what class of person is on stage kind of thing without having to spell everything out but Mm -hmm. also making it clear that it wasn't the modern world no yeah it's a very alien kind of little small space. Yeah. And small space, that was, that was something that, uh, and be, because we watched this and this is a recorded stage play, I'm sure that the small space, that this wasn't, that you sat where, where the actors would walk on stage, mm-hmm. 
there's a much more kind of visceral quality to having being up so close to the actors in the middle yeah. of this high intense performance. Oh yeah, totally. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in the audience for this live. I've seen yeah. a play at the Donmar before and it you know, it is not a large space. It is very intimate. Um, yeah. And yeah, make in a sense the audience becomes kind of part of the mob, which I think works really well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, um so I think that's everything we we've come on to talk about. Thank you so much Amy for joining me on this podcast. Um, not at all, my pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome to come back anytime, whatever you want to talk about. It's it's all welcome. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Tune in next week. We'll cover another Shakespeare adaptation. See you then.